Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here with Secretary Deborah Lee James. Secretary James, we're so excited to have you today because you have spent time in all of the roles we, we talk about on our show. Secretary James served as the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force, also spent time on the Hill as a professional staff member for the House Armed Service Committee, actually was on the Ben's team at one point, too, so very familiar with business executives for national security, held numerous leadership roles at DOD and in the defense industrial base. So, Secretary James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, and it's great to be with you, Lauren, and with you, Hondo, as well, and to be back at Ben's. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, It's always fun having one of my former bosses here as a guest, Although you probably don't remember that way back when, because I was just a little Air Force Air Force peon then. But you've got one of these, you know, really interesting careers where you've got a mix of industry and actually industry first, and government, then the Hill. Give us a little background about yourself. How did how does one grow up to become the Secretary of the Air Force? Well, it's a story like many stories, which doesn't have a straight line trajectory. And let me just say, as one of your former bosses, I will take full credit for all the successes that you had after you left me. Um, My journey really began, um, my professional journey began 40 years ago. So I am uh, getting up there in age, though I did start when I was three years old. I do like to point that out. And I started out as a national security professional. My very first job was in the Department of the Army. It actually was not my dream to be involved with the military. My dream as a young person was to be a diplomat in the State Department. But here comes the first zigzag. Sometimes those dreams don't work out. Sometimes you don't get selected. Uh, So I pivoted, and I instead went to the Army, and that launched me on what became a 40-year journey, uh, not quite culminating with being Secretary of the Air Force, though I think that was will forever be the best job that I ever had, but a total of about 20, 21 years in the private sector supporting our military. When I say the private sector, I am including uh, certain 501c3s like Ben's, the nonprofit world, some charities as well, but then about 20 years in the government, in and out. So I've never been a career civil servant. Rather, I have had periods where I have gone in. I was an assistant secretary of defense for reserve affairs in the 1990s. Um, Of course, I went back in when I became secretary of the Air Force in 2013. And then, as you mentioned, Lauren, I was on Capitol Hill for 10 years years earlier in my career with the House Armed Services Committee. So I feel very fortunate that I have seen defense from the inside, um, from the outside. I've seen it from the executive branch and the legislative branch as well. So I think I've gotten um, a pretty complete 360-degree picture. Absolutely. And uh, as you know, the focus of our show is on building a national security industrial network. And as you talked about, you've watched the defense industrial base evolve over the last several decades. And and so we're curious to get your take on the changes that have occurred up until now and where we might need to go to address the evolving national security landscape. Right. Well, I would say the number one change that I have seen across the board and I think this goes way beyond the defense industrial base, is the S word. And by S, I mean software. Uh, 
It's the introduction of technology, software into literally everything that we do, which for the most part, I think, has been a huge benefit for the defense industrial base and really for the country and the world at large. So it has allowed us to be more efficient in our operations, uh, both back office and front office, so to speak, much more efficient in production. Uh, I like to think of software, it's the new coin of the realm. It's more important these days than than hardware. Um, So everything like digital engineering, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, all of the these technological breakthroughs really um, hinge on software. So that's number one. The number two thing I think has been a really positive development is uh, diversity in the workforce and just a, a greater appreciation for people being an important part of every strategy for every company as well as for the government. Didn't used to be that way. People were considered, I think, more expendable when I was starting out. And now, People are much more appreciated. They're valued. And again, I come back to diversity. There were very few women in this arena when I started out. We still have a ways to go and could do better, but there's been a lot of progress there. So the focus on talent and the focus on diversity, I think, is another very positive. Now, with that said, you know, there's some downsides. So there's certainly less competition today than there was when I started. We've gone from 50 50-ish primes um, in the defense industrial base, down to about five, so less competition. With the best of intentions, we have continued to build up the body of law and the body of regulations that surrounds the defense industrial base, and that does cause risk aversion for those people who are involved and some other negative consequences. And then I would say the number one thing, which didn't used to be this way, is the political dysfunction. So when I started out in the early 80s, we had much more of a compromising um, approach in in the Congress, and that simply isn't there like it used to be. And so that threatens our budgets, the timeliness of decisions that are made, and the stability of programs. So I think we got to do better in that regard as well. Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, what's happened in the industrial base, and and we seem conflicted as a country. We, we like to think about industrial policy, but we somewhat hate to enact it. So we, I think over the last two or three decades, seem to have kind of let things right out the way, you know, the way they came, let the free market do it. It's causes almost bipolar industrial base of a smaller number of big primes and then a, a large number of smalls without much in the middle. Um, and your experience on the Hill or in the building uh, you're, you know, you've been in some of those debates. What's your sense of should we be a little bit more demanding in the industrial policy side as a way to address this, or is it more about aligning incentives the right way? What, you know, if we want to make some changes and kind of move to the industrial network as we call it, the future, you know, what role does policy play in that versus I would say some of the incentives that have worked in the past? So the short answer is yes and yes. I think we we do probably need to scrub our policies, look at the policies, and we also need to look at the incentives that we currently have on the table. <clears throat> and I would like to think that uh, policymakers, both in, in the Department of Defense as well as in the companies, we could put our heads together as well as with our colleagues on the Hill and maybe do better here, reduce some of the what has come to be viewed much more as red tape, some of the things that slow things down. I think there's still uh, more ability to do that. I think some of my friends in the industrial base may disagree with me on this one, but I think nowadays we are giving more scrutiny uh, to 
mergers and acquisitions simply because we have become so small. There's so few bigger primes now, and even the second tiers are getting smaller and smaller in number. So the fact that it's getting more scrutiny, I think that's a positive. Now, that can be a negative in industry when deals uh, get slowed down. But again, for the country, I think um, having a focus on that is a, is a good thing. And then I will say um, the fact that we are really making much bigger efforts, more can be done, but we have made progress in trying to open up the Department of Defense to smaller, more um, innovative commercial companies that have technology that we would like to have access to, but who just simply can't figure out how to do business with us and can't get a reliable stream of money to make the business proposition worthwhile to them. So we're doing better in that regard, uh, but we need to keep pushing. We need to keep pushing. And, and Debbie, I want to pull that thread a little bit because I know you're spending time looking at these issues now uh, as chair of the Defense Business Board. You're doing some interesting work for the Atlantic Council as well. Can you talk about why it's so important to enable companies like these non-traditionals, startups, venture-backed to, to participate? You talked about the importance of software um, and then perhaps some of the hurdles you've observed and, and maybe what we could do about it. The, the, the reason why it's important is if you <clears throat> read the news on any given morning and you learn about the geopolitical threats that the United States and our allies face, whether it is Russia, uh, whether it is China, it's, it's a complex world. Terrorism, even though we don't talk about it as much nowadays, it hasn't gone away. It's still out there lurking. And let's not forget North Korea and Iran. So there are many worrisome things out there. Um, and we've got to make sure that we're prepared to deter and, if necessary, defeat any enemies. So how do we do that? Well, we can't just do it the way we did it 20 years ago. We have to keep evolving. Uh, policymakers for a number of administrations now have identified a variety of critical technologies. Most recently, Undersecretary Heidi Hsu listed about 14 of them. And when you look at what the 14 are, my recollection is three of them, three, like hypersonics and directed energy. These are driven by government funding, and they're really only government uses to put these technologies toward. But the other 11 of those critical technologies all are coming primarily out of funding and out of companies in the private sector that are doing these technologies, not necessarily for, for DOD use, but could be applied to DOD use. So the question is, how do we harness? How do we harness that innovation? And this is where I come back to, we've got to keep pushing to make it easier to do business with the Department of Defense. We've got to keep pushing to bring down uh, barriers. We need to uh, put more focus on this issue in the Department of Defense. So I was very glad to see in, in our Atlantic Council report, one of our recommendations is to um, elevate the Defense Innovation Unit back up to being a direct report to the top leaders. It had been that way originally. It was subsumed under research and engineering. And I'm very glad to say it must have been another Washington leak because the Secretary of Defense beat, beat us to our punch and has, has done just that. So that will uh, bring important focus. Um, I think reforming what is called the JSIDS process, which is uh, the joint requirements process, as well as the requirements process in the services is another important one, um, because it takes years to develop these requirements. And by the time you've got the requirements and you do the development and you begin to deliver something, 
it could be 10, 12, 15 years and the whole world has changed and it's not relevant anymore. So I think that process is in need of reform. Um, and we need to look at some of the successful models out there that have brought speed to acquisition, like the Special Operations Command, like the one I'm most familiar with, the, the Rapid Capabilities Office of the Air Force, like the very promising Space Defense Agency. We need to look at those models and then refashion, <clears throat> as best as we can, the other acquisition arms within the department to come closer to doing what they're doing to speed things up. So our report endeavors to uh, make recommendations in all of these areas, and we tried to be actionable, and we're trying to get the word out uh, so that hopefully it can make an impact this, in this year's congressional cycle. So I'm going to go back a little bit to the people side of this, and, and as we talked about in the opening, you've had this uh, wonderful career of bouncing kind of back and forth. And, and some people kind of put down the revolving door as a negative thing. And I actually think it's, you know, actually very positive to have all these multitude of experiences and be able to leverage them. When you came back into the uh, government after, you know, having major roles in industry and then in, back into the sector of the Air Force role, kind of what surprised you the most? You know, you've been around government, but as you go in these, in these you know, very high positions, I'm sure, you know, as it, as it was with me, some things I thought were true, weren't, and then I got surprised by some things, and then some things uh, were kind of as I expected. Kind of, what was your experience in that uh, back and forth? My greatest surprise, and this is going to sound perhaps a little naive, and let me back up by saying I was fortunate that I had had a previous tour of duty in the Pentagon. So I knew the processes, the procedures, more or less. I knew how to do blocking and tackling and move an agenda forward. That is very complicated for people who have had no experience in that before. So at least I had that going for me. The part that was most um, surprising was just how difficult it had become to work with Congress and to get your point across and support an agenda. Now, I thought I was going to nail that easily. Since I had been on the staff of a congressional committee, I know the types of ways that you move an agenda and, and how you, know, you have to be brief and you, you provide language and the, the backup. And I, I know all of that, but it had just become so dysfunctional. I can remember on multiple occasions going in and having great discussions, great, very cordial uh, collaborative discussions uh, with a congressman or a senator, and the very next day go before this same person as part of a hearing and be ripped to shreds. And it was almost like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde effect. But that's the way it is nowadays, and you just have to be prepared to roll with the punches. It's, to me, distasteful that this is the way it has become, but, um, of course, Congress has a great deal of authority and power, and so we just have to keep working on it. And, and, and what skills did your government time maybe give you that were beneficial as you kind of flip back to industry? Or, you know, what were the things early, maybe early on your career that, that you either learned or you were exposed to that maybe helped propel you along on through your kind of private sector experience? Set? The biggest skill was simply understanding a process and understanding how um, budgets are put together and who the decision makers on certain decisions would be. So an awful lot of it was understanding and having respect for the process. 
again, I'm one to say flat out that the process is too long and, and dragged out drug out, but there are reasons for this. And one has to understand those reasons. One has to respect those reasons. You can work to try to improve or change, but you just can't go in there guns blazing and think, you know, you know everything and to have walked in those other shoes, um, I think is very important. And I agree with you, this so-called revolving door, there are laws and there are regulations which say that you cannot do certain representational work. And I certainly, I think like most senior officials, respected those to the hilt. But beyond that, it is very important to have walked in each other's shoes, to have had both the government and the defense industry experience because you don't understand one another very well if you don't. So I thought it was a plus that I had both. Mm -hmm. And I was actually going to hit on that, Debbie, because of you talked about we've had an increasing diversity in the workforce, and I know um, I admire several things uh, that you've done to, to pave the way for folks like me um, in this field. But to have folks go in and out of government, that cross-pollination seems so valuable for collaboration. Hondra talked about, is it policies or really is it culture? I think finding ways to strengthen collaboration um, often can be spending more time together or in the shoes of others. Do you have any advice about folks who are looking to go back into government, maybe after a successful time in the private sector, or that government can do to attract more talent, but both ways in and out of, of government? One of my endeavors at present is I am very honored to chair the Defense Business Board, uh, which is an advisory body to the Secretary and the Deputy Secretary of Defense. We're all volunteers, and we all come from business backgrounds. Some of us have had experience in DOD, some of us have not, but we are all having had experience, uh, significant, significant experience in the business world. We just delivered a report. It was focused on civilians, not on uniformed military, but it addressed a lot of what you're saying, Lauren. So this report talked about using to the, um, uh, to the maximum the authorities that exist today, which allow for people to come in, not necessarily junior level people, but people with significant experience. They can come in for shorter duration periods of time. The government can pay them a bit more. Um, and they can come in with the knowledge that they will be working on super important problems and helping to solve those problems. So to use those authorities to the max. We also talked about how there are no civilian pipelines at present in the Department of Defense. So think about the skills that we think we're going to need for the future. People who are more tech savvy, people who understand AI, data scientists, uh, or it could be just areas where we have shortages, uh, in talking to the Secretary of the Army a month or two ago, the number one shortage that she told me about that worries her is the shortage of daycare workers. They, they can't get enough daycare workers in uh, to support military children, and that is a readiness issue. So it could be technical skills. It could be just shortage skills. Um, there is no process, or there are no people who focus on that. We have at present, uh, for the most part, HR specialists who fill vacancies or do their best to do so. We have USA Jobs, which is the central repository, which most people think is a bridge to nowhere. It takes so long to get a reply if you get a reply. So we have some recommendations there as well. Specifically, we think HR specialists ought to be uh, retrained and repurposed, I'll say, to become either recruiters, recruiters the way um, best practices in the private sector recruit for people, 
uh, or they ought to be branders, people who do branding. We have a branding problem in DOD. I think it's uh, impacting our uniformed recruitment, and, uh, and it's also uh, impacting our civilian recruitment. But, you know, young people, they want purpose. They want to make a contribution to the world. There, there's ways that we can refocus our branding or really do some good branding, I think, to help in this regard. So we got to get people sort of in that mindset, retrained and be focusing in those areas. So it is a big problem. And again, it's one that our, our body, the Defense Business Board, is trying to advance the ball on. So uh, you and I work, uh, you know, now outside government and, uh, and both, I think, have a lot of interest in venture-backed startups and bringing new players, new diversity in terms of products, processes, people uh, into the industrial network. Um, are you seeing, you know, four or five years ago, there was kind of an uproar with Google and, you know, this this notion that, you know, you can choose to kind of ignore national security and then just kind of focus on technology. I, I've sensed that's changed over the last couple of years now. Google announced they've got their national security division. A lot of venture-backed companies are coming almost national security first or in parallel. What's your sense from what are you seeing in the venture world and, and how might we work better together to bring those uh, companies into this industrial network? Right. So this has been a, a tough year for the for the venture world, just with the rising interest rates and general uh, worldwide uncertainty, I will say. But... I, th I think the future still remains bright, and I think the venture world remains very uh, interested in doing business with the Department of Defense, but they've got to see certain things changed if they're going to have faith um, in the system. By the way, let me come back to that. I also want to say this idea of um, Google withdrawing from the national security work and then sort of coming back, trying to get back in. I, I believe Google's CEO is probably reacting to what appeared to be a, an uproar within employees. And I think that's a cautionary tale for many CEOs because that's another trend across the country and probably across the world where, you know, the opinions of employees didn't used to matter. Well, now they do because employees can vote with their feet and they have choices. So CEOs try to be mindful of other stakeholders like employees, but sometimes the law of unintended consequences can happen um, as well. So that's a, that's a cautionary tale for many, for many CEOs and many companies across the, the nation. But back what, to what we can do for venture capitalists. We need to, um, first of all, we're, our Atlantic Commission um, report is also recommending changes to the SBIR program, the, the Small Business Innovative Research Program, which is a front door for many young small companies to get exposure to DOD and DOD problems. We're recommending opening the aperture as to who can participate. Maybe we allow some venture-backed companies to participate. Maybe we raise some of those thresholds. So we'd like to think that that, that will help. And then we got to continue to keep pressing on this so-called valley of death, whereby they get a little bit of seed money to start a process, do a prototype, get, get their foot in the door. And the warfighters, on the one hand, who they may be working with, say, we love this stuff. And then they get all excited and they think, wow, this is, you know, is going to be the big time. And guess what? There's no money. There's no program of record which puts forth money to keep them going. And so then they enter into what's called, it could be several years' worth of this valley of death. Well, these young companies can't hold on that long. And so somehow we've got to keep pressing on 
putting more money out there to allow us to make bigger bets in the Department of Defense with those companies. And even, dare I say, put more money on the table because the lure of a million dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars may be enough in the very beginning, but it is not enough. They have to see that there is a reasonable chance, a reasonable pathway to production and to having their innovation adopted at scale for this to really work. So again, we've got some recommendations that are targeted in that direction. Yeah, I think, you know, having been part of that commission, we talk a lot there about, you know, moving from an exporter of technology, maybe the model 20, 30, 40 years ago, to an importer and fast integrator of technology, uh, and really trying to root out this areas where the DD may be redeveloping what already exists in the commercial world and move that money over into buying more things. So I think your sense of um, having to change where we focus our money uh, to close some of these business equations is a, is also very powerful. Yes, and that um, that sort of model, I'll say, where we try to work that a little bit better is part and parcel of what the Space Development Agency is now trying to do. And by the way, it's not just the venture-backed smalls. Even if you're talking about a larger company, certain principles ought to be more important going forward. You know, speed. So SDA is trying to set parameters. We want to have contracts uh, completed or from contract to launch, we want like three years. Okay, well, that's unheard of being quick. So they're trying to set speed as a parameter. They are doing something that we did when I was secretary for the B-21 bomber, for example, putting out there that we are going to have very stable requirements. You know, if anybody wants to change one of these requirements, it goes all the way at the top. And the top is not going to be real interested in listening to your story unless it's a really good story. So don't keep changing the requirements. Make sure that you're using open systems architecture so that as the world changes and new technologies are developed, you can plug them in more easily. Um, and these are some of the principles that we need to imbue more across the Department of Defense, not just in these pockets of excellence like the RCO or SOCOM. And finally, I'll say having fewer checkers checking the checkers is the way I like to put it. So there's lots of echelons of review in the Department of Defense, but there are certain um, certain areas, SOCOM, the RCO is another, where those echelons of review have been compressed and the key people are all sitting in on the same meeting around the same table. So if somebody objects, if somebody has a question, it all gets out on the table much more quickly instead of going to this office and this office takes four months to review and then to another office and they take six months to review and then somebody else at a junior level says no and the whole thing stops for a year. That's the way it happens sometimes at present, and we need to change that too. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for getting into some of those recommendations. As we chatted about before we started recording, there are a lot of efforts on this issue, and I think consensus that there's a problem here, but not a lot of great recommendations to champion. So I urge our listeners to take a look at the Atlantic Council report, and I think it's also fantastic, Debbie, that you've been collaborating with folks like Ellen Lord, who's tied into the PPBE Commission, which we've highlighted on our show, or some of these other action-oriented groups group so that we can really move the ball along here. So um, thank you. Thank you for all the work on that front. And I wanted to see, we talked about how government might be able to reform. 
Uh, Hondo, I, I know brought up how you're advising startups or v- venture capitalists now. A- any advice to our listeners who might be trying to get their technology into government? Thank you for highlighting that it's a, a complex environment now with the economic conditions. We've seen some pull out of even trying. Um, so for those who are eager to still enter the market, what would resonate with you when CEOs or founders would come see you or when you'd speak to the private sector? So what I would suggest there is it's very important that those in the private sector, particularly the younger companies that don't have experience with DOD, come to the table with a bit of humility. So um, you may have a fantastic product, but it may not, it may not be what DOD needs. It may, with some tweaking, be workable, but it may not be among their top priorities. It may not be um, the best thing. And they will ultimately be the judge of that. Uh, you will not be. So come to the table with, with a bit of humility. Uh, that would be number one. Number two is come to the table and really listen. Listen to what they do need because, by the way, if you don't have exactly at the moment what they need, as I said, it may be a fairly easy tweak that you can uh, that you can provide, and then you'll have better opportunities going forward to sell the product. Um, and then the third thing is maybe take some time to get educated on the processes of DOD as best as you can. And I acknowledge that can be a tough tough thing to do. But when you're talking to a particular, say, warfighter out in the field, you've got to understand where that person sits in the process. It's not necessarily that person's decision. There are other people who will be at least involved in that decision. Hopefully that person will have a voice. But you got to be patient because the person you're talking to may not be the decision maker or may not be the sole decision maker. So to kind of understand that process and who's who uh, before you get uh, too excited, I think would be another good piece of advice. Yeah, that's all great advice. And on the topic of humility, I really enjoyed your book. And I think if our listeners haven't taken a look, they they should go get themselves a copy. But you had a lot of great advice in there for folks trying to navigate their career paths and lessons learned. Um, You've spent time in roles that all put an enormous amount of stress, whether it's as a president of a big business line at SAIC or as the Secretary of the Air Force. How do you manage it all? How do you stay balanced and, and deal with stress in those roles? Well, I wish I could say I was perfect at managing all of that, Lauren, and and I'm not. But in that book, and thank you for mentioning it, Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success, I do devote an entire chapter because one of my key principles and one of my key life lessons learned is you have got to demand that you maintain some semblance of a life outside of your working life so that you don't become all consumed, so that you don't become a workaholic. By the way, workaholics tend not to be the most productive people. They tend to be very hard on talent that that works for them. And remember, we talked about the importance of that. You don't want to lose your people to those who are micromanagers, workaholics, and, and so forth. So you'll be a better professional if you have that outside of outside of your work life, you'll be a more fulfilled human being. So I'd say the number one way I tried to keep myself grounded was always through, um, was through my family and making sure that I carved out time to be with my family. Now, with that said, I admit it, I'm not perfect. There were times when I was all in and seemingly working around the clock, Secretary of the Air Force, I traveled a great deal. Um, But then there were other times when I was able to step back a bit more, get home at a proper hour. 
I take my vacations. I always take my vacations. People who seemingly don't do this, I think it's a mistake. Um, So you have to sort of rock and roll with it. You have to be prepared. And hopefully that's part of teamwork. Hopefully you have a good team on the job so that when you need to take a step back, by the way, you might have to take a step back because you have an aging parent who needs help or you have a child who, who needs extra attention. There's all kinds of reasons. Or you just want your vacation. Hopefully you've got a team that can cover for you. Likewise, people are not islands unto themselves at home. Um, Single parents who don't have any kind of a support system, I don't know how they do it. You have to have a team at home, be it a daycare person, be it your parents, be it your neighbors. There's got to be some group of people that will help you at home too so that you can lean into the job when you need to. Yeah, that's such a such an important point. I, I, I talk a lot about staying fresh and how to stay. And most of the worst decisions I ever made in my life were when I wasn't fresh. You know, I just smoked from working too hard or not getting a mental break or anything else. That's that's so important. You you know, you, we were talking before the show that, you know, I, I recall I was, uh, again, working for you way back when, and uh, you had an award ceremony, and my parents came in to see you, uh, and you invited all the parents of the award winners in your office, and you spent like an hour with them. And my parents walked out, and they said, how in the world is the Secretary of the Air Force have an hour in a day to spend talking to us. You know, doesn't she have more important things to do? And and in that talk to them, you probably don't remember it, you talked a lot about service and the value of service. And so, you know, in your careers, you look back and you mentor folks coming up the chain of command. Um, how do you think about service? You know, it doesn't have to be service in government, but service in some way and and how has that helped maybe keep you fresh and keep you grounded on on those things that are enduringly important, not the temporally important kind of things? Yeah. Well, first of all, I will tell you, the Secretary of the Air Force probably had lots of important things on that particular day to, 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 to work on. But... Um, people and talent. I mean, that was my number one priority. So doing those ceremonies and um, talking to the parents and the children and the siblings, that was always my pleasure. It was always my honor. And I probably picked up a good story or two about you growing up, Hondo. So, you know, I have that in my back pocket for a later time. Uh, Service comes in many, many different ways. It doesn't have to be service to the country through the military or through working through the government. Service basically is helping other people. It's doing something good for other people so that you make some kind of an impact on other humans and your community so that you leave your organization hopefully in a better position than the position you found it in when you first arrived at that organization. So um, I think uh, you talked about mentorship a little bit. Um, I've always been a big recipient of, of mentoring people and I've never been in a formal program, which of course exists today, but I just have always had either great bosses or uh, senior colleagues who have given me good advice, and even more so, they've opened a door or two for me along the way that I could have never opened uh, for myself, particularly when I was just starting out earlier in my career. Um, So that's what mentorship is all about. So the number one way I think all of us as, I'll say, more seasoned professionals at this stage in life, we can pay it forward and we can make sure that we're um, mentoring others. 
Well, Debbie, on that note, you've brought so much great advice to our listeners today. Thank you for talking through um, your career path and, and ways we can continue to foster talent and also very actionable ideas about how to strengthen collaboration between the national security community and high tech sector. Um, and, and this idea of rocking and rolling with it. That's something I'm going to take with me, too. I love it. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.